You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Mothers tend to be fierce creatures, and I mean that in the most complimentary sense. I've seen women who've become almost university educated on their own steam about topics like autism and become the strongest advocates a child can have. But such fierceness doesn't come without fear or challenges or even despair. Rebecca Robertson is the mother of twins, one boy Harry and one girl Georgie, and she's had to fight for both of them in different ways. She's here today with her daughter Georgie Stone to talk about her book about a girl, a mother's powerful story of raising her transgender child. Ladies, welcome to Feed, Play, Love. Thank Thank you you. for having us. Georgie, I just want to start with you. As a transgender woman, I feel you're in the best position to clarify some terms for us. Why does it make a difference to describe something as gender affirmation and not transition? Well, for me personally, I prefer to use uh, gender affirmation because for me, and and I mean, it's different for everyone and people describe their own experiences in a different way and that's, that's great. But for me, it was less from going from one to the other, you know, male to female, and that's kind of what transition implies. But for me, I've always been female and I just want to affirm what has always been there what has always been a part of me and that's that's my that's that I'm female so for me when I what most people will call transitioned it was really just me affirming my gender something that has always been there. Rebecca how old was Georgie when she first told you this is how she felt? Uh, She was very young she was between two and a half three years old when she first articulated how she was feeling about herself. I think I describe it on a number of occasions that I I felt alert but not alarmed. It was not something I expected to hear my little person say so confidently and so firmly, but I listened to it and I thought, oh, well, don't know what to do with that really, so let's just (laughs) move on. That's how I feel about most things my kids say to me. Um, When did you realise that it was something that you actually needed to address and not just something that Georgie preferred, like, you know, like a phase? Mm. When did you know it was something you actually had to do something about? Oh, look, there, there was... It was a number of years after that, you know, that initial time when, when Georgie told me that she was a girl. It manifested in a number of different ways, but mostly it was in how she spoke about herself. And, of course, as parents, you understand that kids are very expressive and creative and um, like dressing up and like pretending to be people and things other than they are. But this was a completely different intensity She was very consistent in what she said about herself and the ways that she tried to demonstrate to us. But it was when she began school and being in that environment that was incredibly gendered where things really began to unravel for Georgie and it was her extreme distress that eventually we had to do something. Yeah. This is a huge generalization, but something that I've also noticed amongst my peers is that when the stay-at-home carer, be that the mum or the dad, 
notices that there's something that needs to be addressed in their child, the working parent, the parent that's not at home as often, can find it difficult to understand or appreciate that the uh, magnitude of what's going on. Um, that was the case in your family to begin with as well, wasn't mm, it? Yeah. What was that like? Because, I mean, it's hard enough to understand yourself what's going on and, and mm. how to handle it. It must be must have been quite challenging to then have to sort of convince your partner that there was something that needed to be looked at here. Mm. It, it was difficult, but... Um you know, Georgie had never been shy at home about who she felt herself to be, but she did confide in me. And I think most parents who are the stay-at-home parent who are doing the daily routines knows when kids talk to them. It's around bath time. It's around bedtime. It's those more intimate moments where you're close to your child and, and they feel safe to tell you what's going on for them. So it was that I think Georgie was talking to me and confiding in me and I was trying to relate that to her dad. He didn't see it the same way and it was finally when he saw that real distress. There's an incident I talk about in the book where he he did see that real distress that he started to come around. Mm. And you do talk about how Greg, yeah. sorry, Dad Greg, took Georgie, yourself, down to buy a dress. Do you remember? Yeah, I think I was eight. I think mm. I was eight, seven, eight. You do were you, seven. Seven. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, yeah I do. I do. Uh, that, was, that was a lovely moment. I think we still have that dress. Yeah, I kept it. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, that was a really lovely moment. That was a moment where I, I, you know, felt a bit more trust for Dad. Yeah, it was lovely. And what was it like? I mean, you have always known who you are, and I know you've had no other experience to compare this to, but you started very young having to convince the world of you of who you were. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your memories like of childhood? From my perspective, I had a very happy childhood because, you know, I knew who I knew who I was, and I felt comfortable when I was able to express myself that way. So I definitely do remember the, I suppose, fatigue of having to explain myself constantly and over and over again. I was just so sick of it because I just wanted to move on with my life. I just wanted for people to accept me for who I am, a girl, and then, you know, move on to more interesting things, I suppose. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I definitely grew tired quickly of having to explain myself but I mean it was a necessity for me I had I had to have people understand because I knew I could not live my life as as male because it's just not me it wasn't it's just not who I am and it it just hurt me so much having to do that Rebecca we can't determine the temperament of our children but it strikes me both um, from reading the book and and from watching different things that you've both done, like Australian Story and Four Corners, that um, Georgie has a certain temperament, a certain strength, and Mm. um, I don't even know if strength's the right word, but confidence. How important was that in this whole experience that she's turned out to be 
such a well-rounded woman. Sorry to talk about you while you're in the room, Georgie. But <laughs> you know, right, keep going. T- talking, yeah, talking as a parent, like you, one of the last things you say is how proud you are of both your children. Mm. And you know, you've come to the end of well, not the end of the parenting road. We know that never finishes. Sorry, I'm 40 and my parents are still looking after <laughs> me. Um, but you know, we all, when we have young children, hope that they grow up to be someone like Georgie is. Obviously, the support that you guys showed her as her parents was important, but I can't help thinking if Georgie had a different temperament, it might have turned out quite differently. Yeah, I think that's true. But um, I also think that we as a family were fortunate in that we're all communicators. That's what we do for a living. And Georgie has always been very articulate and Harry's always been very articulate. And we talk about things and we talked about things from a very early age. The thing that I think that both Georgie and Harry have is integrity. And we all lose strength from time to time because we're faced with incredibly um, tough choices or difficult situations and challenges. But I think integrity is a character trait that helps you through those tough times. Strength is one thing, but you get tired. Determination is one thing, but you get discouraged. But integrity is really hard to get rid of. There is a story in the book um, that's really, I mean, there's a lot of stories that are hard to read in the book, I've got to say. There was one in particular, so primary school, when you you mentioned before, Rebecca, that going to primary school was challenging for both of you, and also for Harry in his own way. Mm. And I found it very hard to read how your first school treated you, Georgie, and the experience you had as parents. There was one incident we talked about the swimming class and forcing Georgie to use the boys' toilet. I think I almost threw up when I was reading that. It was, it was. I mean, obviously I didn't experience it, but it was very hard to read. Do you think things have progressed? Now we've had safe schools, we've had more discussion about transgender children. Do we know that that won't happen in primary schools today? No, I think I think we've seen a terrible backlash against programs like Safe Schools and against any support for trans or gender diverse children in primary schools. I think that's definitely something that could happen today without any issue. There's no excuse for that happening today because we know better. And if schools are making a conscious decision not to support all the children who attend their school so that they can get the best out of their education and reach their full potential, then the leadership of that school really needs to have a good hard look at themselves. That particular incident was terribly distressing. But at the time, there were no government school policies for trans and gender diverse young people, which there should be today. There were no programs like the Safe Schools program to help educate the staff on how to best support a young person like Georgie. So we were very, very, very much out on a limb. And there was no wider community discussion about the existence of trans and gender diverse children, let alone how to support them. So there's no excuse today for schools not to be aware of this issue 
and not to make their school a place that is welcoming of diversity in all its glory. And that includes trans and gender diverse kids. As we know from Georgie's story, she understood herself from a very early age. It's not a question of kids not knowing their gender. I mean, when you were when you were five, did you know your gender? Yeah. I did. And Georgie did too. Mm. So it's not a subject that kids shouldn't be asking themselves or shouldn't understand or that the leadership of the school shouldn't prepare themselves for. There will be, in every school, a gender-diverse child or more. It seemed, I mean, the thing that really struck me about that situation was even beyond the understanding and the support that you would expect uh, or legal support that a child should have in that situation, I think the thing that disturbed me most that without all of that, it was just a, it was a harmful thing to do to you, Georgie. It was something that was so obviously not what you wanted. And, and, and I bring it up because I feel like it's a good, it's a good story to sort of throw back at people when they say, oh, boys can't use girls' toilets. It's like, well, that's not what we're talking about. Mm. And if, if anyone could read, and I highly encourage people to read your book, but mm. also to read that particular section, mm. because no one would ever should ever be forced to send their girl into a boy's toilet. We're so sensitive about that, mm. you know, that we're so sensitive about letting our children use public toilets mm. of their gender. Mm. So for it to happen in a school is such a stark kind of um, example of how people misunderstand the situation. Mm. And I think with this, you know, really confected outrage about all gender toilets or gender-neutral toilets at the moment as though it's some hideous practice we're all being forced to undertake. It's actually a great way to protect all of us. And the hurt, the damage that's done by people not being able to use the toilet that's appropriate for their gender identity is only to that trans or gender diverse person themselves. They are the ones who are in danger, not the other people in the toilet. And I think that's why I really wanted to include this experience in our lives is to show how completely inappropriate and wrong this current narrative about trans people in bathrooms as though they are going to perpetrate some terrible crime. The crimes are perpetrated against the trans person time and time and time again. Recently, Georgie and I went in to see the debate around birth certificate reform in Victoria. And a lot of the arguments against birth certificate reform was this absolutely fairy tale horror story idea that sexual predators meaning trans people were going to come into you know the bathroom and harm somebody there was a, a former policeman and a former ambulance paramedic who were both in support of birth certificate reform and they both said neither as a paramedic or a police officer did they ever attend an incident where a trans person had harmed anybody in a public toilet. A hundred percent of the time, they would attend, if there was a trans person involved, they would attend an incident where it was the trans person who had been attacked. 
We'll be back with Rebecca and Georgie right after this. When you become a parent, you enter an exclusive club, one that only other parents can truly understand. I spent a lot of time running and yelling names. Come back, get back here. But I bought him one of those backpacks that had a lead, like, you know, a monkey one. Because it doesn't look as bad. Yeah, like a disguise. (laughs) The Parent Panel is a weekly podcast that invites adults to ponder the big questions of looking after small children with more than a bit of humour mixed in. Join us for The Parent Panel wherever you get your podcasts. Where do you think this comes from? I mean, in it seems obvious that they're afraid of something. Mm. But what is it they're afraid of? Well, I'm not in their minds, thankfully. Yes. <laughs> um, I suspect that it's actually deep-seated misogyny and homophobia and transphobia. I don't think it's a fear. I think it's about power. I think they're just hitting at low-hanging fruit, in quotation marks. It's so easy to attack trans kids. Who are the most powerless people? In the book, Rebecca, you talk about Georgie displaying leadership qualities from a young age. Georgie, how do you feel about, you know, now you're an adult and you've, you've had a voice the whole time, but as it seems like as you've gotten older, that voice has been amplified. I don't know if you feel the same way, but you are, as your mum was just saying, that at the very beginning, it was like you had no power and now you've, you're influencing a lot of people through all kinds of work. Yeah, um, it's definitely, I definitely don't think I've had a voice the whole time. I mean, I was able, you know, within my own family, I was able to communicate what I was feeling. And in that sense, I had a voice. But for it's been a long time coming. It's for a long time, I felt ashamed of myself, didn't want to be out as trans, um, didn't want anyone to know. I was afraid. I was incredibly afraid what what people would say, what people would think of me. Um, and sometimes I still feel that. But it, it, it got to the point, I think, when I was, yeah, around 14, 15, when I thought, I don't want to be afraid anymore. I am actually proud of myself. I actually love myself. Um, and I, I want people to know because there is nothing for me to be ashamed of. And I also wanted to help. I wanted to tell my story. I wanted to, at the beginning, it was fighting for law reform for trans um, young people and their families so they wouldn't have to go to the family court to access the second stage of treatment. Um, I wanted to help. I wanted to change that law and I wanted to tell my story. So it it just it, it became a point where... You know, I felt like I was in a position to do something. But really, I feel like trans people are forced to have to advocate for themselves. We are constantly put in a position where we have to stand up for ourselves and fight because a lot of the time no one else is going to do it for us. And I'm very lucky to have my mum to... to fight for me and to stand up for me and she stood up for me when I was so young and and couldn't fight for myself but so for so many of us our bodies our identities are politicized and uh, argued over and we have to stand up for ourselves we're forced to so 
in many ways, I'm here because I have to be. Yeah, but you do it well, which is lucky for everyone else Thank that you. you do it well. Um, just taking it back a step, because the book about a girl, a lot of it is about the court battle you had to go through. Um, Rebecca, can you explain very quickly? I mean, you can't really quickly, but <laughs> let's just explain. The reason you were going was because, Georgie, you needed puberty blockers. Yeah. Why was it so important at 10 that you needed to take those? Because uh, otherwise I would have been subjected to puberty that I didn't want to go through and would have been very traumatising and harmful for me. Um, For example, I I love singing, I love writing songs and the prospect of my voice deepening and breaking was terrifying for me. Um, I, I just simply didn't want to go through that puberty. It would have just been horrible. So I needed those puberty blockers for my own health and well-being and so it was it was incredibly important that we got that and at that stage I'm going to try and summarize (laughs) at that stage you had to go through the family court system to get approval for a child to use the puberty blockers is that correct that's correct so um just backtracking a little bit on what Georgie said there the age that we applied to get puberty blockers was because she had gone into full-blown puberty. It wasn't a random, we weren't just going, quick, (laughs) let's get these puberty blockers. She had gone into a very rapid pubertal development. And we understood, because Georgie had been at the RCH um, for um, the Royal Children's Children's Hospital, having her counselling and... Um, appointments with the endocrinologist and so on and so forth. So this had been after years of psychosocial assistance. It just happened to be when Georgie hit puberty and her body went ballistic. It wasn't a gradual uptick. It was bam. So we were in danger of losing that once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Georgie to continue living as herself comfortably as she had been up until that point. I think uh, the perception of people is that these things are fast-tracked, um, um, there's, there's um, not enough checks and balances and so on and so forth, but it's a long and meticulous process. And, um, you know, it had to go before the Ethics Committee at the Royal Children's Hospital even before we were able to apply to the family court. So at that point in time, treatment for gender dysphoria, so stage one and stage two treatments, stage one were, was puberty blocking medication, stage two were gender affirming hormones. It was considered a special medical procedure because of a precedent in 2004. So the, the small number of families who at that point were supporting their young person, and I have to say, even though it was a terribly distressing thing, it was a matter of personal privilege that we were actually able to go through that process. Mm. So many families weren't even in a position where they could go through that process for their young person. So by the, its very nature, it was discriminatory. And it harmed young people. So they were not getting the best outcomes because the family court is busy. It's got a huge court list and young people were not able to be seen in a timely manner. We just scraped through by the skin of our teeth for that first court case. 
And the whole process made me so angry, so, so angry. And once we uh, had that approval from the family court for Georgie to start pubertal blockade, very quickly, in fact, it was when we came out of the courtroom, we started to talk about an appeal. And we were able to appeal because the judge hadn't granted leave to give us permission as parents to make a decision about stage two several years down the track if the need arose. So her decision meant that, yes, Georgie could start blockers, but we would have to go back to court in a few years' time to ask permission for the next stage of treatment for the same experience. It's Reading that, I think what really struck me as a mum anyway was this crazy alien idea that essentially what was happening was the court system was saying that you as a parent do not have the right to care for your child. Like you don't have the right to make decisions for your child where, you know, you've given birth and gone through all the everything else um, with the right to decide what is the best thing for your child. But all of a sudden it's like, oh no, sorry, sorry, we're not, we're not comfortable with this. Mm. It's right. ludicrous as well because mum has known me all my life. She more than anyone knows me. And this judge doesn't know me, never even met me in person, never even laid eyes on me, but somehow, and doesn't have an understanding uh, of the treatment. They take the advice of the the medical professionals. They don't even have that knowledge. It has to be explained to them. How are they more qualified to approve this when mum really knows me, the doctors know the treatment, and more than anything, I know my identity? It's discriminatory, absolutely ludicrous and doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. And also, most importantly, it prevented children from getting the best outcomes. We were able to remove the jurisdiction of the family court from making decisions around stage one treatment, which is puberty blockers, but we weren't successful in that second stage of the first stage two in our appeal, which was created another problem for families coming through because they were able to have their child begin puberty blockers, but it became part of the risk information that the hospital had to provide their young people that you know if you start blockers somewhere down the track you will have to go to the Family Court of Australia and apply for stage two if that's appropriate. You were raising twins and um, you obviously had a lot going on with what you were trying to do for Georgie. What was it like trying to parent two children during that time? I mean it's hard enough to parent two children when they don't have challenges going on. I find it hard to get two children out of the door in the morning. So what's it like parenting, especially twins, same age, going through similar things at school, if not, you know, there's special things happening for Georgie, but how is that as a parent? Well, Harry has his got, has got his own needs and idiosyncrasies and, and um, vulnerabilities, so it was difficult to be alive to all of those things when we had such enormous hurdles to overcome for Georgie. So I admit that there were times when Harry didn't get 
the attention that he deserved. And that must have been very isolating for him. He is one of those people who just seems to be getting on and he keeps everything quite close to his chest. He's he's very articulate, but he doesn't talk a lot, does he, Georgie? Yeah, he, he talks c- when he, he can needs talk to. when mm. he wants to talk. Yeah, and he can talk very well. Yeah, but when he doesn't want to, he just yeah, he's good at his, keeping his cards yes, close to his chest. Yeah, tests. that's right. So we thought that Harry was was trotting along fine, and we talked openly about what was happening with the courts and all of that sort of stuff, but without making the kids frightened, especially Georgie. We didn't want Georgie to be frightened. Um, But obviously something big was going on. Keeping all those balls in the air is difficult. But to be honest, I don't know any different. You know, I had twins. That's my parenting experience. I look at people with three singletons and go, oh, my God, (laughs) I don't know how they do that. And when my kids were however old they were when they got out of nappies and some of my girlfriends were, were just getting pregnant with their second child. I was going, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I got the jackpot. Yeah, fast burn, <laughs> but look at me go. Yeah, so I, I don't know how to compare. You do what you do, don't you? Yeah, that's true. But as I said in the, the introduction that um, mothers are fierce, sometimes I think because we don't have a choice. We don't have it. I know it sounds terrible, but we love our children. I found that quite surprised, stupidly. I knew I'd love my kids. What I didn't know is that I wouldn't have a choice about it. Mm. Um, and that fierceness, like you say, that's that's just what you do as a mum. Mm. But that does come with all the vulnerabilities of being human. So mm. the, the fear and the despair and those mm. sorts of things. Um, obviously, you were very scared for Georgie at all through that time. How did you deal with that fear? Oh... I don't know. I didn't really have a strategy, to be honest. I think um, going to work was fantastic. That was my mental health plan and sticking with a few really good buddies. But also I had founded Transcend, which is it was the first parent-led peer support network for the families of trans and gender diverse children in Australia. And that connection with other parents, other families going through the same thing was key really to me and to those other families surviving the vagaries of this hurdy-gurdy world um, a lot better. Mm. Georgie, how do you feel about your mum's book? I love mum's book. I'm so proud of her. I, I mean, I did find it difficult when it got to the court process so I read like the first half of the book in a day you know loving it laughing crying everything so proud got to court I'm like I'm just gonna put this down now start reading tonight and then for two weeks I didn't pick it up because I was just so scared to kind of go through that again but I did and finished the rest of the book in a, a day I'm so proud of her, so proud. And I, and all, like I knew she could write, but I didn't realize she could write this well, and I was just yeah, it's just so over the moon. I keep I keep saying it, and I keep saying it to mum like every now and again unexpectedly. I'm just so proud of you. She does. <laughs> yeah. I said it about like five times last night. <laughs> um yeah, but I really am. Yeah, and Rebecca, you have two adult children now. I know. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> oh. 
To be honest, I feel like I've been awake for every second of it. <laughs> so, I uh, look, I'm so proud of them and I'm I'm proud of the effort that we've all put in and I I'm just looking forward to seeing what happens next for them and for me. And um who knows, but you know, watch this space. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Ladies, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Pleasure. That's Rebecca Robertson, author of About a Girl and Her Daughter, Georgie Stone. It's a remarkable book. There'll be links in the notes for where you can get a copy. We're trying something new on Helpline. While Mothercraft nurse Chris Minogue's away, we're focusing on relationships. It might be important for this particular mum to put themselves in their friend's shoes just for a moment to acknowledge that they might be grieving the loss of a friendship and that they really are feeling a deep sense of, of loss and grief over this because they probably have invested a lot of time in it. And perhaps that's the same for the mum in question as well, that they're grieving the loss or the change of a friendship dynamic. That's Kirsty Levin, a counsellor with The Parents' Village. She's an expert at dealing with how relationships change after children, from friends to partners to parents and in-laws. If you'd like to ask a question, send it to helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. This podcast is produced by Debbie Ning and I'm your host, Siobhan Hunt. 